0: This podcast is supported by the Rebecca Vassy Trust, a UK-based charity which promotes the art of narrative photography through granting bursary awards to up-and-coming photographers and funding public education projects like this one. This podcast has full editorial independence, and the views expressed in the series are not necessarily those of the Trust. Welcome to season two of the Photoethics Podcast, I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number four, we'll be talking with Pete Brook on thinking about images. Born and raised in England, but based in the San Francisco Bay Area, Pete Brook is an independent writer, curator, educator, and prison reform activist. His website, Prison Photography, is a resource that centers around the role photography plays in representing prisons and incarceration. Pete has curated a number of exhibitions, including Prison Obscura, which presented vernacular forms of photography, such as surveillance images and prisoner-made photographs, on the topic of incarceration. His work has been featured by the British Journal of Photography, the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times. In 2018, Pete received the W. Eugene Smith Fund's Howard Chapnick Award and a Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting grant. Could you just tell me a little bit about your work to start?
1: I suppose you find myself right now at a strange transition I suppose if you know if you looked with a magnifying glass at what I've been doing the past few years some might say this transition is a year or two long or some might say it's five years long. I've stopped writing daily like I used to for publication for prism photography and for other clients and I've moved into teaching. The two aren't mutually exclusive but I just found that writing was a solitary experience a lot of the time and I honestly felt like the world and the internet and conversations and groups were moving in a way that everything that I'd been saying with not everything, but a lot of stuff I've been saying with prison photography was now part of the mainstream conversation and the urgency of my writing fell away. And that's not because of any change in myself and my approach to writing. It's, It's because of like what I would identify as very positive changes in the world and in American society right there's still lots of scraps and fights going on but they're happening in public and more people are understanding why these social justice movements are propelling themselves forward so my work has always been interested in this intersection between prisons and imagery and trying to ask the question what do we know about mass incarceration because of images however with this shift towards teaching, which was a shift towards being with people. <laughs> prisons and prison photography has become less of a focus. I'm thinking about photography from all different angles and particularly thinking about what a photo education means to you know, your average 18, 19-year-old in Northern California. So that would be a shift away from an area, prisons and mass incarceration, that I've always been associated with but that work is still there.
0: You know, the idea of photography education in higher education, you know, and in universities is something that, you know, a few people have talked about in previous episodes of this podcast. And I think that there's a real growth in people who are self-taught and who have not taken sort of maybe a formal education in photography. And I guess I wonder from an educator's perspective, Do people need a formal education or what do people gain when they have that?
1: I mean, it first depends what you qualify as a formal education. You know, Yale MFAs and everything in that, you know, higher echelon, let's call that academic capitalism or just hyper competitive academia that functions to distinguish and label itself as Formal education. I'm teaching broad general survey classes in the California State University system, which is made up of 20, I'm going to get this wrong, I think 23 campuses. It could be 27 or 29. It has 400,000 students at any given time. It's the largest degree granting institution in the world across all of its campuses. So I'm teaching just your average freshman sophomore and in a lot of cases junior and senior in that system so some of them will be passionate about photography will have been done it for you know since they're eight or nine years old and some students will come into my class without a jot of experience in photography or art history and so the challenge for me where i am is to pitch material that novices and so like the more experienced students can deal with and if that is a formal education because it's a class being taught attached to an institution then I do think it's absolutely necessary but with like certain qualifiers and I would rephrase the question and say is a visual literacy imperative and I would say visual literacy is imperative and a visual literacy should have a major part in any photo education you know whether that's An art historical approach through an art history program or, you know, as classes to supplement and to complement studio photography work. And if I focus on visual literacy with my students, I'm focusing on really justifying every image and every set of images I bring to them. You know, why are we looking at this? Why are we looking at now? How do we want to look at it? And what are we not seeing? All of that is really fruitful and it's a lot to get through and it's good but it requires clarity and energy and momentum so i think a formal education is necessary and one more thing to say about that is you know when i emphasize visual literacy it's because in my classrooms i want to talk about gregory crudson i want to talk about nan goldin But I also want to talk about the memes that flashed up on everyone's phones yesterday. And you know, I'm constantly asking my students what they. We start every class. I'm like, "Tell me what you've seen in the since our last lecture," and that can be with your own eyeballs or on screens. I think it's just necessary to check in and not to get too precious and, and connect. You know, the work of Ron Haviv and Diana Lawson to a daily image diet, which is maybe not formal.
0: Absolutely, but I feel that- like actually that whole idea of visual literacy, it really should be integrated much earlier in the education system. And it shouldn't be something that's so relegated maybe to people who work in visual media or communications or visual arts in a way, right? It's something that we're every single person is confronted with images every day and yeah the sort of sequestering it into this field of, of photography that we deal with visual literacy is really a disservice probably to, to people more broadly
1: yeah and it's tricky as well because there's some areas of photography and there's certainly some artists within photography who create images and when as soon as they go up on the screen the students are excited by them And you have to, like, not fall for the trick of thinking that that means that that's important work. It just means that, like, Larry Clark is titillating and very exciting. And Larry Clark is crucial if we're talking about the crossover between personal narrative and documentary work. But it's it's very specific to, you know, the Midwest (laughs) and 1970s America. It's more tricky when you're having to explain your way around what, on the face of it is a very boring image, but holds a very important part of society because it may have sort of like subtly shaped society. Mm. And so part of being an educator is that fun, you know, it's easy to deliver the exciting images. You've got to make equally exciting those other sort of like core elements of photo experience, let's say.
0: Absolutely. And I would imagine that ethics is a big topic when you're looking at a lot of a lot of photographs in your course. And I sort of wonder if if you could maybe tell us a little bit about how you approach that with the students.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, like I said, teaching a broad array of students, some of them get it straight away, and then some of them sort of like need to be brought along and coached. So, for example. This week, we've been looking at images made in the Japanese internment camps on the US West Coast, specifically at Manzanar, and then some at Tule Lake. Those are the two of the 10 internment camps that were in California. And we looked at three photographers. So we set it up. We started looking at Dorothea Lang, Then we looked at Ansel Adams, and then we looked at Toyomi Atake. In every case, they were arriving at different times, trying to do different things. And in the case of Toyo Miyataki, he was an internee himself. He was making some secret photographs. And then after about eight months, he received official permission to become the official unofficial photographer for the camp. And, you know, as I was preparing the lecture on Toyo Miyataki, which had set up to say that his work was more important and was sort of like ethically more defendable than Lang and Adams, I was actually looking at his photographs, and I was thinking, like, are these better photographs? And in many cases, they, they weren't better photographs, which is understandable. He was a, a studio commercial photographer whose career was interrupted for three years while he was interred. He wasn't a documentarian like Lang, and he, he wasn't <laughs> in the high Sierras like Adams. So, of course, he was going to make different images. But the persistent narrative with Toyomi Ataki has been that his work is in some ways more important than any other photographers because he was an internee as well. And I challenged that yesterday. I said, look at the photographs yourself and judge for yourself. Like his whole story, his biography is important, but we can know that history and still bring a critical eye to the images and you are free to make your own decision on that. And so when you're asking about ethics, I'm always trying to coach my students into thinking about the ethics of image making. I asked them to think about like everything that's outside of the frame, the obvious questions, who's taking the picture? How did they get there? How long can you assess they maybe stayed there? Do you think they should have been there? All these very, very seemingly obvious questions that have routinely been omitted from analysis of photography until recently. Because I think as soon as you start asking those questions, then you open up all sorts of interesting conversation. There's another photographer called Jackie Water who had never heard about until two days ago. And at least online, there are more photographs by him. There's a bigger archive. There's about 165, 166 photographs on a California State Archive made by Jackie Water, And so <laughs> people have been talking about Toyo Miyatake for a, a, the longest time. And I've not got my head in the sand, but I've just learned about this new photographer who was also interred and actually photographed at two of the camps, not just one. And so I left my students with the question, why is it that, you know, Jackie Water's name is only just becoming known? And I've set them an assignment to think about his work because it's totally fresh to everybody in the class, myself mm-hmm. included. You know, so yeah. that's part of ethics as well. Like, why is it that one biography, one narrative is repeated and pedestalled and then others are not and this isn't about race or power in the same way because they're both japanese american photographers inside the Mm -hmm. camps so the comparison between the two seems you know it's a it's a fairer comparison to ask of
0: i think that's a really interesting question you raised about you know whose stories persist or whose photographs or work persists and yeah whose are lost and why those things happen. That's something sort of related to what I've been exploring in my PhD, looking at how photographs of Troubles Era in Northern Ireland are archived and sort of the ethics and the politics of that process, the archival process. And it's really interesting to see, yeah, sort of whose work is preserved institutionally and whose isn't and how is that happening.
1: I've been thinking a lot about archives recently and how they can be worked by collectives and sort of like collective effort. So, you know, a really obvious example would be the Wikipedia edit-a-thons that happen every so often. I first heard of these a few years ago when Interference Archive in Brooklyn, New York, would organize like Saturday afternoons. And they would collectively go and add to Wikipedia and put in artists of a particular identity, usually. So it was either female artists or BIPOC artists. And this is a very subtle, necessary, both corrective and additive motion <laughs> towards the archive, which I think is fantastic. There's a number of artists who may or may not fall within sort of like social practice parameters, who are making and, and reassessing archives with community members which i think is very important a really good example of that would be in southern california a professor by the name of little hernandez she is a professor of anthropology and american studies at ucla and she just won a 3.5 million dollar grant to take a large tranche of LAPD archives from the nineties, mostly. And in community groups over a number of years in a formal way, you know, directed by trained archivists and historians, they're gonna reannotate those archives. And instead of being sort of like under the ownership and power of the police or the police archivists, they're gonna be reanimated and pushed out and reframed and recontextualized, and then parts of it is going to be pushed out into the world in different publishable formats to, you know, be corrective and additive again. So whether you can do that with live archives, of course, the the challenges are very different between the LAPD and Northern Ireland, but the approaches needn't be too different. Mm. So when I think about archives, and you mentioned photographers works i I can't imagine who those photographers were whether they were news people artists individuals or if it's institutions there is always space to invite peoples to bring their own photographs Mm. and add vernacular photographs of the moment to the historical moment that the archive wants to speak to it's a lot of work it's a lot of organizing I've conceived of these things. I'm not sure I think I would want a team, need a team, be part of a team and mentors to get it done. It's so important and it requires training to deal with archives, right? Yeah. But there's so much potential there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think Northern Ireland is quite an interesting example, but you know, it's been interesting for me as well in the past several months. I think the whole concept of archiving and what a photography archive is, I think is becoming more and more debated. I think it's a really active conversation right now. And I think it's interesting as well to see sort of what are different perceptions of archives as well, because I think that what an archive means to a photographer is very different from what an archive means to an institution or an archivist. And I think sort of, I've attended several online workshops during lockdown that have really, it seems like have tried to sort of bridge that gap using archivists to talk to photographers or to talk about how to archive to an archivist standard if you're a practicing photographer. And it's been really interesting watching a lot of those conversations unfold. I'd like to sort of dig into a little bit the prison photography work that you've done. What led you down that road to to focusing on prison photography?
1: it's obvious. It's like the civil rights, the human rights abuse of our time. When I first learned about mass incarceration in like 2004, it was because I like went to find out about it. It wasn't in the air. It wasn't in the conversation. It wasn't in the journalism. And it's a fucking scandal. Since the 1980s, almost with complete impunity... Politicians and publics have been rather happy to punish poor people. And in America, where race and class are intertwined, that means they've been punishing more disproportionately people of colour, led this experiment, this man-made experiment, let's not be shy about calling it what it is, of mass incarceration to put people behind bars at a rate larger than any other humankind, civilization, society has done in the history of man. So... Once you see that, it's pretty difficult to turn away. Mm. And I was angry for a few years. And then I was involved in photography as a researcher. I'd come out of art history. I was getting more and more interested in photography as it related to visual literacy, advertising, you know, all the critical theory around it. It's the medium of modernity. And when I teach, I also make the point that photography and colonialism sort of like ran hand in hand. <laughs> from, from their, their inventions came about at about the same time and have really suited one another. So, apart from being angry, I wanted to make an assessment of what my contribution could be. And I was like, well, I enjoy looking at pictures and I also enjoy deciding if those pictures are useful or not. And especially in this pressing issue that doesn't seem to be getting any airtime maybe i will be useful and help people along and that might be helping them to understand an individual image or an individual photographer's work or it might just be explaining to them for the first time the tentacles and the breadth of this tumorous growth of prisons in the us and early on i think i did introduce a lot of people to the issue and I think they felt the same shame, anger, dismay as I did because everyone feels like they've been hoodwinked. They think they're living in a country, land of the free, and then they realize that it's the exact opposite. It's a country that relies on punishment and isolation and organized abandonment and so that's why it became my issue because it was too big to ignore.
0: And how have you used and can you use photography to tackle that effectively and ethically and with results?
1: Yeah. Well, I've never claimed to know all the answers, still don't. But the question does tie in nicely with where we started this conversation, which is what is my journey and where am I now? And I'm in education because I think it offers different possibilities to present and to think around images. So if you think about prison photography for the first eight years of that, 2008 to 2016, that was just me asking questions all the time, right? I don't know the exact figure, but I guess there's over 200 interviews on prison photography. It needs redesigning. The website is a shit show. I'll admit that, Uh, but the archive is there. And it's incumbent on me at some point to make it more usable. Setting that aside, after many, many years of creating this survey of prison photography, you know, in most cases, not looking at any work that's new, but in most cases, looking at work that maybe got a run out once or twice 20 years ago, connected with a lot of photographers, connected a lot of the boxes. Helped people, not only audiences, but photographers, understand where their work fit in. And then, like the history of photography, you can, if you want, you can take a broad look and consider genres and you can see how the approach to photography making inside of prisons has shifted from in the 50s, like this very, very rare but kind of kitsch approach. You know, this is before mass incarceration existed. This was while civil rights movement was emerging but in no way connected to civil rights. It was only in the late 60s when a few documentary photographers started going into prisons and looking at it with a racial lens, the prisons and race was connected visually there, but it still wasn't like taken on by broader society. And then in, I'd say, maybe the late 80s with Kami, but certainly throughout the 90s, And certainly into the early 2000s, there was a lot of photographers who were wanting to share their power as image makers and doing collective projects. And some of the most exciting stuff came out of activism and social practice and, you know, making or reassessing images and, you know, not always there being an author to that assessment. It's come out of a collective effort and... You know, teaching inside of prison that I did for a year, 2018, 2019 at San Quentin, taught me a lot of tools that I use in my classroom at Sac State. And I think that's where you start to get into layers, don't you? But you want to create something in the classroom that is not only useful to the people in the classroom, but could potentially be useful to secondary audiences beyond the classroom and tertiary audiences and so in the case of assessing prison photographs and photographs in general when I was at San Quentin that's what I asked the men to do I was like you tell me about these images and you know write a good essay a college level essay for assessment for for me to grade here but also think about like not overthinking it think about writing for a general audience and we'll see where that writing goes So I think those are the opportunities for thinking around images of incarceration. We need to go past the dominant, simple, obvious tropes which seem to stand in for a depiction, in inverted quotes, of prison. And photography falls short a lot of the time. I think film, if it's done really well, can be incredibly impactful. There's a good number of podcasts now I think listening to a half hour conversation between people who are expert and have really thought this through can be as good as spending two hours walking through an exhibition or or going through a photo book, you know, Mm. they provide the context. And so if it's someone who is directly impacted, a family member, if it's someone who's formerly incarcerated, if it's someone who's in prison, although that's more difficult to secure, then that's the best thing, right?
0: What kinds of responses did you get from the men that you worked with in San Quentin in response to some of the the imagery of prisons that that you were sharing with them?
1: I got a very mixed response. First, I'll say, you know, I learned that some students understandably don't want to talk about prison in any depth, (laughs) right? And I'm laughing there, not because like I encountered a wall, but I encountered a few students who like reasonably explained to me, they're like, dude, we live this every day, like what more else is there for us to say? Especially when a lot of them feel like they've been saying the same thing for years and years and years, but they say it amongst themselves and it doesn't seem to affect what the administration thinks of them and their personal case. And so there was that, there was a little bit of of pushback. I was asking them to do a lot as well, you know, in the context of the class. Some of them had not considered photography or photo history much at all, but their, their, their speed of learning, the way they took stuff on throughout the 13 weeks of the semester, resulted in them all outperforming in terms of what they wrote and how exacting it, it was. A lot of them gravitated towards photographs of children in visiting rooms, kids of incarcerated parents, even if sort of like the images were not of prison. And I've found this time and time again. And I think it's because they identified themselves in the cycle of incarceration. A lot of them were parents themselves. A lot of them had been down for a long time and you know missed out on 20 years of their child's growth. So they wanted to speak directly to those tough emotions They appreciated moments where they could use education or assignments to continue the work that they're doing on themselves, which is phenomenal, by the way. So like self-directed, self-improvement amongst the men. And I have a piece in draft form that's been there for two years. And this might have been specific to San Quentin particularly, but when you and I first met, at the Gene Smith Awards, you know, everyone was congratulating me on on the grant, which was wonderful. But I'd already identified at that point, I'd been teaching for a month inside, that while the education programmes are very, very important and really do open up all these other doors, whether those education programmes are there or not or whether other programmes exist, the men are still going to be organising and working on healing themselves And that goes on all the time. So I have a piece called Prisoners Doing It For Themselves. It's encouraging everyone just to like back up and stop thinking that any outsiders are saviors or doing God's work. Because the juggernaut of mass incarceration is bigger than that. And it can quash most things if it decides to take a sinister turn. But the organizing between men themselves quietly, hourly, daily is harder to quash. So, for example, like since last March, there's been zero programs in San Quentin prison. There's been zero programs in any prison in California. Like Their lockdown is far more different in character to lockdowns that we've we've been talking about in the outside world. So, you know, a prison, if it wants, can just shut its gates. And that ceases all inside, outside, in-person interaction. But it doesn't affect too much the ability for men on the inside to organize.
0: I think that's a really, really useful point for everybody to remember, regardless, really, of, of who they're working with, that none of us are are going to come in and and into a community that we're not a part of and do something. I mean, maybe few of us, maybe I shouldn't say none of us, but very, you know, it's rare that you're going to go in and, do something really novel that nobody's ever thought of that's going to totally change people's people's worlds. Right. And I think that's sort of humility at recognizing, you know, the people who do it for themselves and I'll come in and I'll do what I can, you know, in your case, you know, I'll come in and I'll, I'll teach photography because that's what you can offer. But being really mm-hmm. aware of the limits of that, I think is powerful and important.
1: Yeah. You know, and just sort of like being fleet footed and flexible There's always lectures which go in a way you don't anticipate. So, for example, the average age of my students was 50 to 55, and 80% of them were African-American. And that's because they'd been locked down for crimes they committed as very, very young men. That was the narrative. That was the general demographic in my classroom. The penny dropped for a lot of them, and... You know, I was recently applying to a few things. So I was going over the student evals again, and a lot of them really, really appreciated when I brought in the DVD of Through a Lens Darkly, which is a documentary of questionable production value, but the narrative and the artists it includes are very, very important. It's made by Ashton Harris, not Lyle Ashton Harris. That's the artist. It's his brother, Thomas Ashton Harris. And it's about the relationship of photography to black experience in the United States. And so they really, really appreciated that because that was towards the end of semester and it seemed to tie a lot of things together. And it seemed to answer that core question about what their own personal relationship to photography was. But then on the same hand, they brought a criticality to work like Lorna Simpson and especially to Zanelma Holly, we had the most heated debate in the classroom about Zanelma Holly's recent self-portraits, where she's using everyday objects to adorn herself. So a quick glance, it looks like it's a really like fashionable, indigenous or African in quotes, type of dress. It sort of like serves the unknowing eye. And then closer examination, you realize it's just clothes pegs. Well, some of my students thought this was frivolous and self-sabotaging, and they did not like this work at all. They wanted Zanel Mahali to have more respect for herself. And then other students pushed back. They were like, hold on, this could just be fun, or it could be something different we haven't labelled yet in between. So I add that to say that this big international black photographers who are working on issues of identity, black identity. I know Zanelma Holly is also working on sexuality and gender. So they were attending to those images and discerning what they liked and disliked. And yeah, there was some black artists who they just rejected outright. But generally, so like that introduction to black experience and photography over the past 170, 180 years, was new to them and something that they could anchor within their own personal story, their own personal narrative.
0: Do you have any recommendations for photographers who might be photographing people who are incarcerated or photographing issues sort of surrounding incarceration? What are the things that you would recommend to make sure that they're doing it in an empathetic and an accurate way?
1: There's a few answers to that question and not one of them is here's a photograph of a prison that you should look at because it's reliable. And, you know, going back to education, a lot of the best artists, activist artists looking at mass incarceration are also teachers. It necessarily has to be part of the work. There has to be an engagement with the image making, with the performance. And so photography of course operates very differently to that. So I would say, Straight documentary work, look at the work by Jacobi Adam and Isadora Kozowski that they have done about visitation, because that's work that focuses on partners and children and the efforts, expense, journeys that are needed for families to stay connected and, and visit. Uh, Jacobi made her work several years ago now in New York State. Isadora Kozowski made her work a couple of years ago in. Florida. So just for straight documentary work, that's stuff I return to.
0: And what is it Um, about that work that you think has been done well or effectively? Or what, what is it about those photographers that you feel like they've done a good job?
1: I mean, I would certainly say my assessment has been shaped by the responses of my incarcerated students. Like I say, they gravitated towards these. They saw themselves in the pictures more important they saw i had one student troy and he spoke about the lady who featured in jacobia's work and he spoke of her as if she were his own wife you know he he said in the paper even physically they looked similar he lent on the photographs to talk about his own situation but the reports were always that these emotional moments that Yacobia and Isadora had caught were accurate. They did speak to their experience. But even before I introduced the work to the men at San Quentin, there was something very open and honest, especially at Yacobia's work, because she traveled on the bus with them and sort of like experienced all the inconveniences and rigmarole of that. And then Isadora's work, you can spot it a mile off, because she will usually isolate. Emotions, or you know, glances, or fleeting moments, usually on the face of folks. And she did that time and time again when she was photographing in the visiting room. I think she had, you know, slightly long lens. She wasn't right up on people all the time, but she was always waiting for that moment that would translate as a single image, (laughs) as the visual. Beyond documentary work, I think that the work that Jackie Summell does where she's creating community gardens and doing so at the instruction of people who are incarcerated. So, you know, she's come from a fine art background. She's used photography, ephemera correspondence, and and she's heightened that correspondence and broadened it out to being more than just her and someone who's incarcerated, but a community and someone who's incarcerated. Jackie Summel's great. An artist like Sable Elise Smith is moving away from images because she, She knows that they can't get close. The work of hers I really like is the language work where she essentially describes a picture. She makes a picture in words precisely because a picture will will never be adequate. There's the work of somebody like Ashley Hunt who uses photography but just in sort of a, a document way. He photographs landscapes surrounding... Prisons. He thinks about sort of like the journey and physical exclusion and tries to use photography and his own journeys to shorten that gap. And then, in terms of public imagery, I would point towards the work of Mark Stranquist and Courtney Bowles, who run the People's Paper Co op in Philadelphia. And they make art for protests, for movement, for actions, for events. And they're doing this year round. And they're embedded in the village in Philadelphia. And the majority of people who they work with are system impacted. And they're training people how to make beautiful art objects, make paper themselves, design, and then mass produce, mass print stuff for protest and for public statement. That's a wonderful use of image.
0: I'll definitely try to put all the links to, to all those in the show notes. And I guess I'm wondering also on the flip side, is there any kind of image that the men at San Quentin really pushed away from and really rejected or were not comfortable with and felt that it was maybe not appropriate or not fair or not accurate?
1: Hmm. They're all very different. So some men had to be coaxed into writing about images of the death chamber. Lucinda Devlin did a series a long time ago called Omega Sweets, and it was maybe a couple of dozen death chambers that was both electrocution and gas chambers. And I really had to, I had to convince one of my more proficient students that it was okay to go into this. And if he was comfortable with it, and he was all right to assert some distance and think about the topic and think about the images and then think about where he fit in. But you know, without any exception, they were all opposed to the death penalty. Mm. Just because they identified the arbitrariness of it and understood that for some of them, for some of their crimes, if they were in a different state, that, you know, different legal circumstances, they could have been sentenced to the ultimate sanction also. Some of them did not want to talk about prison visiting room portraits, even though they're the most widespread, most significant, most obvious, most still made genre, subgenre of prison photography. But I think that was directly related to whether they had strong family ties or not. Mm. You know. If yeah. they did, then it's comfortable for them to talk about the visiting room. If they've not been to the visiting room for years and don't have anyone, then probably something they want to stay away from. Yeah. But the one body the one body of work that they didn't like was Lewis Boltz's. I got really excited just weeks before I started this, I found a body of work by Lewis Boltz called Point San Quentin which isn't even a place. There is a San Quentin point, but it's in a different place. Uh, and he was across the water, maybe like half a mile as the crow flies in Corte Madeira, so looking across at San Quentin. And he made this body of work of about 50 or 60 images from a walk he did on, I think, one day, one afternoon. And it's Lewis Baltzi, you know. It's it's crap in the ground. It's scrap. It's like broken trees. It's twigs. It's mud. It's garbage, it's tied, it's black and white. And there's like three images where San Quentin appears in the distance. And they thought it was absolute junk. <laughs> they had no time for like working with a new topographic and trying to figure yeah. out what the meaning of these photographs of the dirty ground was. Yeah. And for him to call it San Quentin, they were like, no, no, he's taking up space there that he doesn't have permission to.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So
1: the most arty, the most conceptual was the stuff that they rejected. Yeah. And I understand why. Yeah. I was giving them lots of other options to talk about, you know, prisons, incarceration in the abstract or, you know, their own personal views. So, yeah. I understand why they rejected Bolts.
0: Yeah. Something I want to ask everyone who comes on the podcast is what does photography ethics mean to you?
1: All right. A few months ago, I initiated a, a discussion with some of the photo educators, it's online. And the premise was about fear and it was my fear. And thankfully they talked me down. But when I think of photography ethics, I think of talking about and sharing images in a way that helps people know the world better. And my fear is that images more and more are causing alienation, causing confusion especially amongst young people. And going back to what we said at the very start about visual literacy, you can take any image, it doesn't have to be an image of blight or plight elsewhere in the world. You can talk about the ethics around an Instagram story, you can talk about the ethics of those platforms, you know, which are now increasingly algorithmically run. And I don't know whether this fits your definition of ethics, but and in, in some ways it's unfair, but I yell at my students. And when I say yell, I mean sort of like <laughs> friendly remind them all the time, joyously yell at them. Like we have to do the work, right? We're the consumers. And if you're not thinking about images in a way where you want them to improve society, then you you might be inadvertently becoming part of the problem. And my fear is that our current image culture And especially in the past five years in the era of Trumpism and whatever follows now is that it's too much work for people to do. Or worse than that, they don't even see the work that needs to be done.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photoethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Sarah Weiswa on the importance of listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, why don't you check out our online courses? We've developed a series of three online courses designed specifically for photojournalists and documentary photographers. We discuss questions like, how do we achieve accuracy in our photographs? What's the relationship between power and consent? And when, if ever, should we intervene? These online courses come with perks like access to an online community group for discussion and Q&A opportunities with me, the course leader. Enroll today at www.photoethics.thinkific.com or go to www.photoethics.org and click online courses. This podcast was edited by Ellie Gascoigne.